For our listeners providing e-commerce accounting services, you know the pain of seeing lump sum deposits from Amazon or Shopify hitting your client's GL. It usually means you're about to spend hours manually categorizing revenue, fees, and other transactions before reconciling. E-commerce accounting doesn't have to be this hard. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, A2X, later in the episode. Yeah. And, and that's the thing about cryptocurrency that I think people need to remember is it's super complicated, but it's also super simple. And the author describes it in this article as just a big spreadsheet where all you can do is add rows to it. You can't do anything else. And all of the mining is just designed to facilitate everybody adding the same rows to their copy of the spreadsheet. That's how I like to think about it. And then I think the other big call out I think you had here, and I'll let you go into some more of the details, but normally Ponzi schemes go after other people with money. They target financial firms, bank, the elites, wealthy investors. But with this, with Bitcoin, for $2, you can invest. On Robinhood, I think it's only a dollar. He's calling this the people's Ponzi. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Today is Saturday, January 22nd. This is the Cloud Accounting Podcast, and I am Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. David, good to talk to you again. You as well, Blake. Every week. Hey, Blake, I have this great idea. Well, the criminals had a great idea, but I figured out how we can exploit it to benefit the podcast. What is your scheme? So apparently the FBI has issued a warning this week. Criminals are creating QR codes that just send people to payments pages. So you know when you go to restaurants, there's the QR code to check out. They're everywhere uh, now, right? Oh, no. So, so it's like a sticker, and you just put the sticker on, and it's a different <sighs> barcode. But and it then looks, it brings up it, a payment page, and you just put in your credit card, and they just charge you. And you that's it. And I was like, this is genius. We'll just print up QR codes that s- subscribe people to the Cloud Accounting Podcast, and we'll stick them everywhere. So if I understand this correctly, you print out a QR code. You make a QR code, yep. and you design a website that looks like the payment page for a restaurant or a store. It could just be any payment page because you don't know what they look like. Right. You just put their name on it, though, like just to a make A place it to get seem- credit cards, exactly. Yeah. And then you, you just stick the sticker over their QR code on the menu, and then people go to pay, and they pay you instead of the, oh, my gosh. That's actually a really good And they're putting scam. them on, like, parking meters. It's everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it reminds me of the skimmers, the credit card skimmers that you see at ATMs or at gas yes. stations. Have you ever seen one of those? They're really hard. Actually, if you're not, if you're paying attention, you can tell, but it's really easy if you're not paying attention to accidentally do that. And I can see the same thing happening with this. This is going to be a big thing, I bet. I mean, how do you, yeah, how do you defend against that as an establishment? You stop using QR codes. Stop using (laughs) QR codes? Is this the end of QR codes? Oh, no. I love QR codes. They're so great. There's got to be some sort of like validation. What you do is you, you put a giant QR code on the wall. That's what you do. That, that they pay, can't, yeah. Pay using this QR code, yeah. Or or it's electronic, right? It's it's screens, uh-huh. and, and it's on an electronic screen, and nobody can sticker over it. But I thought it'd be really, we can print up stickers, yeah, and they'll just be for the Cloud Accounting Podcast instead. To subscribe, and we'll just put them everywhere. And so instead of paying, <laughs> the people will be subscribing to us. That's a genius. Well, speaking of fraud, David, which I assume you are proposing that in a... Uh, facetious manner and not for real, because that would be somewhat fraudulent. We have a real scam to talk about, something that is really bothering me that you brought to my attention, which is cryptocurrency potentially being a Ponzi scheme. 
this article you sent. Where did you find this? Um, Google surfaced it to me. I don't know how I came across it, but it had a great, obviously I was going to click it. The, the title of the article was cryptocurrency is a giant Ponzi scheme. And it's in Jacobin, Jacobin, jacobinmag.com. So I read this because it's such a clickbait title. And I think you might be right. Well, not you, but I think, I think this argument has merit. And it's a long article. It, 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 it's, it, it's, it's a good read. Yeah. It's a deep Stop, dive. Hit pause. Go open it up in the show notes. <laughs> it's worth the read. Um, and, well, and it sets you off on a, a spiral. It's super relevant, too, because you know the price of Bitcoin is down 28% over the past month as we record this. It has almost erased all of its gains over the last six months. And people are starting to question Crypto, and you know, I'm a skeptic. Anyone who listens to the podcast frequently knows that I'm a cryptocurrency skeptic. We'll talk about it later in the episode, but this has given me, my concern up to this point has always been sort of vague. I don't get it. But now I actually see what could be the crux of the scheme or the problem. Again, we'll talk about it later. Before that, I just wanted to let you know about an experience I had, David, about the Great Resignation. It personally affected me, I think. I think it personally affected me because I went to get a haircut and I, I don't get expensive haircuts. I don't know about you, David. Like, where do you go to get your haircut? I go to a, a place Salon. called Hush. So the fact that it's named that chart indicates what kind of place it is. <laughs> well, you have very nice hair, David. So <laughs> I, I always have kept my hair really short, you know, like- I like almost, the experience. I like the experience. I've kept my hair short, like like military. Like, I don't like when my hair gets long, right? So I, I just go to Supercuts to get it cut because it's like, it's literally like- do a three on the sides and take off an inch on top or something, right? It's, it's pretty hard to screw up. I had the worst haircut of my life last week. And I have a feeling it's because of this staffing shortage or something. Because clearly somebody was there who has no business cutting hair. And I kid you not, it's like I came home and after I washed my hair and looked in the mirror, I was like, I look like Blake from when he was nine years old and had a bowl cut. Oh boy. You know, it's like that bad. <laughs> We have the artwork for the show, folks. <laughs> the I think uh, the Great Resignation is real, and we've got stories about that. You know, I, I'm a fan of going on Reddit during busy season and reading the accounting subreddit. And there was a post, the title was something like, managers are starting to quit. What the heck is going on? Talking about, you know, everybody quitting and people are quitting during busy season. And it's, it's causing a lot of havoc in firms and especially in big firms and in audit teams. And the, the comments are just amazing. If we have time, we can get to that. Uh, and then there was a New York Times story about turnover contagion, that one thing that might be contributing to this great resignation with millions of people quitting their jobs is that, well, perhaps you've experienced this, David. If one or two or three people start to quit in your team or your department, you then wonder, hey, maybe it's time for me to go. And that's a real phenomenon, according to people who shrink heads for a living. Some uh, friends of ours were over for drinks. This had be two months ago, three months ago. And during the whole pandemic till now, she runs a dermatology, I'm going to use the word hospital, office, clinic, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Clinic. And so she's the CEO and they did not lose any employees. They were able to retain everybody during the pandemic. And then nobody's quit in the great resignation. Wow. She talks about how like, really when people are quitting, it's not because they're chasing something new. They're trying to escape something. Mm -hmm. right? And so if you kind of think about that for your, your own firm, like, and you actually talked about this last week or the week before, you're like, the whole 55 hours is the minimum. People aren't leaving because they're trying to find a, something 
they're leaving because they don't like the hours. They don't like something about the situation they're in. Right. They're looking yes. to escape. Yeah. <laughs> they're looking to escape those hours, which are just insane. And it's getting worse because every time somebody leaves, those hours, since it's an hourly model, get shifted to somebody else on the team. So it's a uh, compounding problem. And then you're like, hey, Joe got out. I want to get out. Exactly. I could see how this is a, a spreading disease. It's a disease. And the last thing I wanted to mention is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the metaverse. It's starting to, well, we've talked about how accounting firms have jumped on the bandwagon of metaverse and bought real estate in virtual reality. So I went ahead and ordered an Oculus, one of those oh, you headsets. Did? Yeah. Well, I guess it's now a meta headset or whatever, because Facebook rebranded it. But I, I bought one of those $300 Oculus VR headsets and I'm going to try it. And maybe David, you could get one too. I mean, since we've been talking about the metaverse, I assume it's a write-off, right? <laughs> it's research, David. So you get you get one too, and then we'll we could record in the in the metaverse. I've used one. My my son has one. I've used it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You walk on dinosaurs and like, and you're going through a what's the thing floating around the Earth, the space station up there, and you're. Kind I mean, of, you can do whatever you want. You're That's in there, point, and right? then like I fell, like it, it disorients you, and you actually fell. So it's kind of cool, but at the same time. You get this big ass doofy thing on your face. <laughs> like it's kind of heavy. It's hot. I don't know. We'll try. I just it. don't see any. Like, who wants to live in that? Is real life that bad now? Like, that's our best option. Right. Well, that's that's what I said on Twitter. As I said, the only reason we're talking about the metaverse is because we've all forgotten what it's like to go outside and be with other people. I, I do think the metaverse has potential long term, but you know, short term, it's like pretty limited. You know, we could have our meetings. We could we could record the podcast in the metaverse, David. And I think we should try it. We can't we can't just dish on it every week and not try it. It's the sort of same thing. Like you went and bought some crypto to, to I see did. what it's I like. I just looked at my ten dollar yeah. crypto investment on PayPal, and it's now worth seven dollars and forty eight cents. <laughs> well, you bought it, and it's a good thing because you didn't buy it recently. It's about a year now. Yeah. So anyway, those are the three things I kind of have. Anything top of mind for you? That we should talk about on this um, episode? The IRS ID me. I don't know if you've heard about this. Got to take a selfie now for the IRS? Yes. I wonder what they're going to do with all those selfies. And <laughs> I saw H&R Block launched in its own bank. But this is like the second time they've done that. They've been talking about it, but now it's finally like out there. Like it's real. I think they're really probably going to push it this tax season. NetSuite, they released their Cash 360 feature that they were talking about at the conference we went to. That's the one where it's like cash management embedded yes, inside bank. of... Yeah, their bank, basically. Well, they partnered with H... HBSC. HSBC, I think. Yeah. Oh, there's this poll by Practice Ignition about how accountants bill clients. Do they bill upfront or on completion? I was kind of surprised by that. What do you want to jump in? You want to start with this Bitcoin thing first since it's got you all fired up? It's got me fired up. I think it's important. I want our listeners to let me know what they think about it, because I know we have listeners who are fans of crypto, who may be invested in crypto. One of our listeners called me up, I'm not going to say who it is, and said, he's talking about investing $100,000 into crypto right now, because it dipped. And I'm saying, no, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. I mean, I wouldn't, it's, it's incredibly risky, right? Like it could go to zero. Sure, you could double your money, but it could also go to zero. That's not a good investment in my mind. And that's true for all things, all investments. There's all investments. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay Financial. For those listeners that haven't been following along with my drama caused by PNC when they purchased BBVA and botched the migration, 
To quickly summarize, PNC bank feeds wouldn't work with QuickBooks Online. The website had all my old BBV transactions just listed as debits and credits with no vendors or payees. And to top it all off, the June bank statement was just missing, like June never happened. Let's just say my 2021 books were a mess. So for 2022, I made the commitment to stop using PNC and switch everything to Relay. Relay is a no-fee online banking platform built for you and your small business clients. Relay understands and solves all the things we as accountants and bookkeepers care about, security, bank feeds, automation, reconciliation. I invited both my interns to my Relay account. They created their own user ideas and passwords, and within minutes, they were using Relay to create virtual debit cards, physical debit cards, download statements, and reconciling. Now, the bank feeds in my QuickBooks Online are reliable, and my 2022 books are in order. To stop fighting with an unreliable bank that doesn't care about you or your small business clients, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y. Before we get into, I guess, some of the financial parts of this, there's just some interesting things he brought up in this article. We're talking about this article, Cryptocurrency is a Giant Ponzi Scheme, the clickbait article, which, yes, let's talk about it. Uh, the author is Sohali Andrus Mortazavi. I just want to give him credit. Yeah. Apparently right now, cryptocurrency and mining of it is 1% of all global electricity use. Oh, the environmental impact, yeah. When you start thinking about the scope of that, and then he continues that argument with, it doesn't actually produce anything of material value. Right? At least other times we use electricity, in many cases, we're using it to produce something else. Yes. Essentially, the only way these investors in these big, huge mines, if you want to call them this, can get their money out is just to get other investors to buy their stuff. So you can never really cash out down the road. The whole thing, in a weird way, is kind of inefficient by design. Because essentially, it is just a big electric spreadsheet. Yeah. And, and that's the thing about cryptocurrency that I think people need to remember is it's super complicated, but it's also super simple. And the author describes it in this article as just a big spreadsheet where all you can do is add rows to it. You can't do anything else. And all of the mining is just designed to facilitate everybody adding the same rows to their copy of the spreadsheet. That's how I like to think about it. And then I think the other big call out I think you had here, and I'll let you go into some more of the details, but normally Ponzi schemes go after other people with money. They target financial firms, bank, the elites, wealthy investors, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about like, even though Theranos was not a Ponzi scheme, who suffered as wealthy people, right? right? And then obviously people try to depend on the test. But with this, with Bitcoin, for $2, you can invest on Robinhood. I think it's only a dollar. He's calling this the people's Ponzi. They're just getting people that maybe don't know better, 500 bucks a year, 200 bucks a year. And people are just, mm -hmm. they're just basically throwing away money buying these things. I just bought $10 in it or whatever I did a year ago and on all the different platforms to see what it was like. Yeah. Now, if you're dreaming of, you're seeing, oh, everybody else is getting rich because that's the way Ponzi schemes do it. I'm sure there's people putting their hard-earned money that they probably can't afford to lose. Because it's just super convenient. This is just like buying gum at the cash register. I agree with you. And I'm not sure if Ponzi scheme is the right term for this, because I believe, you know, in a Ponzi scheme, you take money from new investors to pay dividends, to pay returns to your older investors. The scam has to grow exponentially because you need an exponential number, you know, increasing number of new investors to pay out the original ones to get their crazy returns. That's just the way it works. Yeah. It's a pyramid. I don't know if this is a Ponzi scheme, but it definitely seems like it could be a scam or not necessarily even a scam. It's actually more insidious than that because of the, the way, what is pumping up the price? The article digs into this 
concept of stable coins. And stable coins, such as Tether, Tether is the most popular one, the most well-known one, have become essentially the banking system of cryptocurrency because most traditional banks cannot work with cryptocurrency exchanges due to knowing your customer and money laundering rules. It's very hard to transact and to buy crypto with cash. It's not easy to do it in large amounts. That's where the concept of stablecoins came in. The idea is, let's create another cryptocurrency that is pegged to the US dollar, because one of the problems with cryptocurrency is that it is unstable. The value fluctuates a lot. Tether is a cryptocurrency that is supposedly pegged to the dollar. I buy $100 of crypto that's tied. When I'm done, in theory, I still get my $100 back. Yeah, you, you buy, let's say you buy $100, you exchange $100 of cash for $100 of Tether. Tether says, we promise that when you want to redeem your Tether coins, you can sell them back to us and we'll give you $100. And we're going to take your $100 and we are going to hold that in our reserves. And they say, all of our Tether is backed 100% by our reserves, which they have lied about. Not FTIC, like it's their own statement of backing. Right. Well, and that's the thing. So Tether is like a bank, really. They're operating like a bank where they're saying, give us your money, we'll redeem it. We'll give you uh, our own currency and you can redeem it for cash. Part of the problem with this though, is what what if Tether isn't backed? Because Tether, you know, it's not cash that is underpinning all of the cryptocurrency exchanges and facilitating all of the purchases and all that stuff. Cash is actually very small. It's only the majority of Bitcoin trades are now conducted in Tether, 70% by volume. That's according to this article. By comparison, only 8% of trade volume is conducted in real dollars, with the remainder being other crypto-to-crypto pairs. Underpinning all of the cryptocurrency markets is the value of Tether. The value of Tether is completely dependent upon the company Tether actually having the ability to back Tether with dollars. So what if they can't? What if there's a run on Tether? What if the value of Tether drops? That's the big question. The whole cryptocurrency market could collapse because all of a sudden, what does that mean? It means that you can no longer exchange your Bitcoin for Tether. I mean, you can, but the Tether will not be worth $1. It might be worth nothing. So then if you can't get your Bitcoin into some sort of cash equivalent, it's worthless, right? If you can't get your money out of your investments, that's the definition of a worthless investment, right? Because it's hard to use it to actually purchase things. Right. You so can't, the only thing you can do is sell it to other investors, but nobody wants to buy it if the market's collapsed. Right. So... If Tether is creating all this liquidity and it collapses, then the price of Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrencies will collapse as well, along with it. The whole thing falls down. That makes Tether really, really important. And Tether is not audited. There is no guarantee that they hold these reserves, that they actually hold these reserves. And journalists have been investigating this. Bloomberg has been trying to trace down Tether's cash reserves, and they can't. They cannot find it. Tether, by the way, like, who is Tether? It's like 12 people on LinkedIn. It's a very sketchy company. I'm not going to dig into the details of who these founders are, but they don't exactly have the greatest track records. This is not a big global institution. Putting this in perspective, if Tether actually has all these reserves, they say they're holding it in commercial paper. It's a very small amount of cash that they say they have, and the rest is commercial paper, which means IOUs from corporations. They've lent the money to corporations. Corporations agree to pay it back upon request. But who are these corporations? Who has the money? Right? Where is the money? Nobody can track it down. Now, Tether has put on its website 
an independent accountant report by Moore Stevens. The last one was in September 30th, 2021. As of September 30th, 2021, the report is called Tether Assurance Consolidated Reserves Report. Again, they haven't gone through an audit, but they have this report on their website. And it's it's amazing because, you know, even me as a CPA, I can't really tell what this report is assuring us as to because it's not an audit. The opinion states that essentially consolidated total assets and liabilities are correctly classified as set out in the CCR, the CRR, the Consolidated Reserves Report. Tether prepared a reserves report saying, here's all the money we have that backs Tether, right? Here's the cash, here's the commercial paper, all the other assets, right? They had an accounting firm come in and look at that report. And if I'm reading this correctly, this opinion, all the accounting firm did was say, you have prepared it properly. You have classified these different items in the correct categories, but it's not like they went and looked at these assets. And there is so much money. So it's really just saying like, your chart of accounts has the right names. Yeah, or like current assets are in the correct spot on your balance sheet. Yeah, exactly. That's what this report seems to indicate to me. They didn't actually like look into whether these amounts are correct. They, they aren't providing assurance as to whether or not the money is actually there. But then Tether on its website is saying, quote, the opinion and the underlying report from Tether clearly unambiguously shows that all Tether tokens are fully backed by reserves and provides a comprehensive breakdown of those reserves. So they're saying, you know, we have the reserves, but there's no audit. There has not been an audit. Oh, and by the way, they had to settle a lawsuit because they've lied about this in the past. So there's a track record of lying about their reserves and they still haven't gotten an audit. And then everybody who looks into this, or at least the journalists who have looked into this, are saying, you know, if, if Tether actually has, how much money is in Tether? The market cap of Tether is $78 billion, US dollars. So supposedly there's $78 billion that Tether has in the form of commercial paper and cash. That's a lot of money. If Tether actually had that money, it would make them one of the biggest banks, right? It would make them a giant bank. But nobody knows where the money is. You ask around, and what does this indicate? There's no smoking gun. There's no proof that we can point to to say that it doesn't exist. But what if? And you would think that if it did exist, they would have gotten an audit. It's kind of crazy that you have all this money. People are paying so much money for Tether in order to speculate on cryptocurrency markets. But we don't even know if Tether actually exists. And so if people start to doubt Tether and they try to exchange their tether for dollars, if the company can't deliver on it, right, that's a bank run, bank failure. It's the same stuff that happened in the wildcat banking period in US history when you had banks issuing their own currency and they didn't have the reserves to back it. I mean, this is why you have the FDIC to protect people from this exact kind of situation. So that's why you've seen the SEC, Janet Yellen, start to get concerned about stablecoins. They're just moving too slow. They see the problem, but they're just moving too slow. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of other indicators in this story that point to Tether being sketchy. Maybe they're not being the reserves there. Maybe price manipulation going on because Tether is being minted in strange amounts and in large amounts and in a way that doesn't indicate that it's actually being used for what it's supposed to be used for, which is as a substitute for the US dollar. And then on top of that, you have all the NFT things that are popping up in the coin offerings and, you know, people start to mail up and they have to pump it to get people to buy those. Right. There's just a lot of speculation, but it's crazy, right? Like I, yeah. I just opened up my cash app here from Square and I'm looking at my value of my 
Bitcoin in there and it's currently valued at $7.31. So my $10 investment is not doing good. I basically have lost 25% in an investment that all time, if you view the all time chart, shows it's increased 264,000% all time. And I've lost money. Right. Well, because it's only increased that much all time for the people who bought it when it was worthless. Yeah. Like essentially worthless. So the thing that's the most important to me about all this is disregarding all of this potential for fraud and for a collapse of Tether. This is what's unbelievable. Tether itself does not guarantee that they will redeem Tether coins for US dollars. In their terms of service, it says that they can choose not to. So these really are nothing more than Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Chuck E. Cheese reserves the right not to redeem your tokens. <laughs> for anything. For anything. Like if they go out of business, your tokens are worthless. This is the same thing. They actually state this in their terms that they don't have. So there's no recourse. Imagine if when you went to open a bank account, the bank said when you open the checking account, all right, you're going to give us your money. There's no guarantee that we will give it back to you when you ask for it. That's Tether. And that is underpinning the cryptocurrency markets. And it would be okay if like complex investors had all the knowledge and could do this. But the problem is anybody that has the cash app or all these new banks and these Robinhood and all these little apps can just buy this. I mean, it, it's really being just uh, shoved in people's faces. Like I said, it's, it's like buying a pack of gum at the cash register. And your typical retail investor or your Robinhood investor has no clue about any of this stuff going on in the background. They just they see have... the chart that keeps going up and they're like, oh, yeah. well, if I give $500 and it goes up 100% again, I'm going to have $1,000. Yeah. My, my friend invested $1,000 and now has $10,000. I'm going to YOLO too. Oh, I'm going to buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip. I literally can buy Buying $1 dollar worth itty. of Bitcoin. <laughs> All right, next. This yeah. doesn't make any sense. This is crazy. I'm, I'm basically like convinced now there's something very wrong here and buyer beware. And that's it. I just purchased a dollar worth of Bitcoin. Just like that. And you know what? <laughs> click, click, boom. Very impulsive. Right. Accountants could step in and help with this. We could provide assurance on this and solve the problem. But I think that the reason there's no audit is because there, there is a problem. And it's the same thing with uh, Theranos we talked about. Why did Theranos go so long without an audit? Well, because clearly... <laughs> They couldn't pass it. And I wonder, I speculate, I tend to think that that's the situation here. And so, if this is true, we're going to see an eventual collapse because people are going to lose faith in Tether and uh, there'll be a run. People won't be able to get their money out and all that crypto will become worthless. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by A2X. Since 2014, Ada X has helped thousands of online merchants and their advisors save inordinate amounts of time reconciling the revenue for their online stores. Ada X posts tidy summaries of sales, returns, and fees from Shopify and Amazon directly into QuickBooks or Zero that exactly match the deposits that appear in the bank account, allowing you to accurately reconcile in just one click, giving you the confidence of knowing that your client's e-commerce financials are accurate. A2X has won the support of Amazon and Intuit and has hundreds of five-star reviews by accounts and bookkeepers in both the QuickBooks and Zero app stores. Cloud Accounting Podcast listener and e-commerce expert Scott Scharf said A2X is the gold standard in e-commerce accounting. A2X has a partner program for accountants and bookkeepers that includes one-on-one -on -one onboarding, training for you and your team, and exclusive marketing opportunities. 
To learn more about using A2X and get 50% off your subscription for three months by using code CAP50, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash A2X. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash A, the number two, X. A2X, e-commerce accounting without the fuss. Kind of tied to this, uh, MicroStrategy. Are you familiar with MicroStrategy? Yeah, so they were one of the software companies that put like 250 million to Bitcoin years ago and helped to- In September uh, of 2020, they did that. Because some of these companies were like, oh, we're going to diversify our balance sheet. I think Tesla did it and some other companies have said this. Hey, we're going to start buying some Bitcoin. So that's grown into like $5 billion in theory of value. Their money. Of real money. Um, But they ran into a problem with, because obviously it's decreasing in value right now. Oh, it's dropped dramatically. It dropped dramatically at 25% in the last month or whatever. And so it's starting to affect their uh, stock price. And they got in trouble. They got in trouble for uh, how they tried to uh, wave a magic wand, make it go away. So the problem with crypto from an accounting standpoint is that it's an intangible asset. We are recommended to record as an intangible asset. There's actually no guidance from anyone as to how we're supposed to do it. There's no gap for (laughs) cryptocurrency, no generally accepted accounting principles, just recommendations. So we treat it as an intangible asset and we have to write it down when it decreases in value and we can't write it up when it increases in value. So MicroStrategy got screwed in their recent quarterly report because the price dropped, what, like 20% or more. And so now their earnings went negative by like tens of millions of dollars, right? And then they tried to, in their report, they tried to back it out and say, oh, you know, we're going to exclude this. And the SEC was like, no. They tried to use a non-GAAP metric to explain this way, and the SEC was like, don't do this anymore. Yeah, it's, it bites you in the butt, right? Actually, MicroStrategy was, has been cited in stories about you know, crypto as being one of the things that helped to pump up the price of Bitcoin in the past. And that was my takeaway that ties it back to the other article on this, right? So they only spent $250 million on Bitcoin. But they used money. They raised a... They raised a billion dollars after that or something. To, yeah, a billion dollars cash. So they used it to get attention, right? Yeah, so, so basically, they're just taking investors' money and moving it into Bitcoin. It's not arguably a real investment. Yeah. I, I don't know how to say that, but like, it's not like MicroStrategy is like, oh, we had this cash. We have this huge cash reserve because we run this amazing company and I need to do something with the money and we're going to put some of it here. It's basically, they're just taking VC money and putting it into this. It, it, it's about as gambling as it could get. Yeah. They're playing with house yeah. money or not house money. They're playing with other people. They're playing money. Investor, investor money and then they're, they're raising more money to pay for their expenses. Yeah, it's amazing. In the meantime, you know, what would solve this is th- there's only one solution to this because anyone could go create a stable coin and you could do it in a jurisdiction where we don't have the ability to control it. Well, before you jump onto that, this is another part of that article with MicroStrategy. Sure. So it's worth $5 billion. And um, MicroStrategy is worth $5 billion, or you're saying that the $250 million they put in is now worth $5 billion. Yes, they have $5 billion worth of Bitcoin holdings. But they know never, we're not sellers. We're only acquiring and holding Bitcoin. That's our strategy. Right. Don't they have a responsibility to the investors? So here's the thing is, this is a backdoor for investor money to get exposure to crypto, Bitcoin, when they can't normally. So the trick is... Rules prevent you from buying Bitcoin directly. Instead, you buy a company that has invested a lot of money in Bitcoin. Then you can get those big returns. That's why people are doing this. That's my theory. And I also think if they attempt to sell $5 billion worth of Bitcoin, they're not going to make that much out of it. The price would fall even more. Right, right. And that's the thing about this whole market cap of Bitcoin. It's not like there's actually, what's the current market cap of Bitcoin? Let's take a look. 
the $5 billion worth is what it's worth after the 40% fall from its all-time highs. So they're pushing probably $10 billion worth of Bitcoin they had at one time. Total market cap of Bitcoin, BTC, is $660 billion US dollars. But that doesn't mean that's how much money was invested in Bitcoin. That's just the number of Bitcoins times the last price somebody paid for it. That's what's important to remember. If people are buying Bitcoin with Tether, so you're buying an imaginary currency with another imaginary currency, and let's say Tether is minting Tether that's not backed by US dollars, it's all imaginary. This is not based on real investments. That's the thing to remember here. So is this a, a, like one of those mental traps? Like, you know you're never going to get your $5 billion worth of this, so you just double down on your wrong argument? Like, let's buy more. Well, no, it's just like the mortgage market before the financial crisis. People know something's wrong. The people inside know there's problems, but they're making so much money, they're willing to ignore it, and they're just hoping not to be the last guy holding the bag. Yeah. There's plenty of people who made money in the mortgage markets that got out before it collapsed. That's what everybody's planning to do, the smart people. And then there's a bunch of dumb people who have no idea what's going on. It's a classic, I wouldn't say it's a Ponzi, but I think it's a classic bubble uh, that's based on you know flawed fundamentals and there's some sort of failure that's going to happen and that will set everything off. That's a very real possibility. So meanwhile, the problem with this, what's the solution, I guess is what I should say. There's not really a good solution that's going to happen anytime soon because anyone can go start a stablecoin. And as long as people believe in it or are willing to ignore these obvious problems, like where's the $69 billion, then they'll still exist. We'd play whack-a-mole with them. We could shut them down, but they can operate for years until they get shut down and then a new one can pop up and open. So really the only solution is if the federal government creates its own digital currency and then bans other cryptocurrencies, which I think will eventually happen because we'll have some sort of massive collapse. It'll hurt the markets. Crypto is going to be the next recession. Then after that, we'll finally have some regulation around this. The US will create a digital currency, we'll ban other cryptos, and that'll actually be useful. But it's going to be slow because it's not going to happen until there's some sort of, I mean, maybe it'll happen before there's a triggering event, but the Fed has just started the debate over a US central bank digital currency. That's according to the New York Times. They took their first step toward more seriously examining the issue, releasing a report on Thursday that examines the idea's potential costs and benefits and opening the door for public comment. There's a reason that you know China banned cryptocurrencies and created their own, because they can control it. We'll see what happens. Unfortunately, I think a lot of small investors are going to get burned before we do anything about it. So I'm curious, you know, what our listeners think about this. I'd love to hear your opinions. Please do write me, Blake at BlakeOliver.com. You know, we have lobbyists here in the US. We got a lot of lobbyists in the crypto industry telling Congress, don't regulate us, don't regulate us. And I think that's also why it's going to be a problem. Oh, and by the way, two of the senators who make the rules about cryptocurrency, I think it's the Financial Services Committee or something like that, they, they own crypto. Just FYI. Oh, and then there's this other story I just had to share. Did we talk about Eric Adams, uh, the new mayor of New York? He said he's going to take his salary in Bitcoin. This is the mayor's yeah, yeah. governors are doing this. It's the end thing right now. Apparently, he couldn't actually take his first three paychecks in Bitcoin as he had promised because federal labor laws require New York City to pay base wages to its employees, including Mr. Adams, in government-issued currency. So, he couldn't actually get paid in Bitcoin. What he did was he used Coinbase to convert his paycheck on Friday into Bitcoin and Ethereum. So like that was the big announcement was he, he got his paycheck and then he bought Bitcoin with it. What a great PR stunt, right? Yeah. All right. Well, 
What, what else can we talk about? We could jump on the IRS, um, the ID me. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. So I went through this uh, a few weeks ago because I filed my you know, like 2020 taxes really late. And I had to set up a password on the IRS. And now they have this new uh, system. You can't just set up your old username and password. You have to migrate to this platform called ID.me. This may be familiar to people because it's being used by other companies, other areas of the government, right? 27 states are using it now. It's for identity theft. Remember all the unemployment fraud we saw? Yeah, yeah. So ID.me, right? You have to take, what do you do? You, to get into your account, you have to take a... To rewind a little bit, I didn't think this was a big deal when I was doing it because I just went through this dance with that other company, Clear. So remember we went to Oracle, we went to Sweet World, and then we went to Sage's Intact Advantage. Mm-hmm. And both of those times, they were using that company called Clear. So Clear is the at the security at the airport line. They do a background check, right? You provide them IDs and you can bypass the security line at the airport. Well, they have gotten into this identity management and they got into like COVID testing. So before we could attend that conference with a third-party company, I had to upload my driver's license, a selfie of myself and all this information and then a proof of my vaccination status to attend that conference. So when I went to the IRS's website, they asked me kind of for the same dance. I had to prove who I was. I had to upload my driver's license. I had to take a selfie. It's a little bit of a dance I've been through. And I had to do this with another app recently on my phone. Maybe it was the Clear app, though. I didn't think much about this. But now, Brian Krebs of Krebs uh, on Security, he discovered this and wrote a uh, blog post about it, about how the IRS is moving to this ID.me. And now every other news company has picked it up, including CBS, Accounting Today. I think the real thing to remember, and he does a walkthrough of this screen by screen, click by click. The big takeaway of this is don't wait till the last minute because you might have to get a push notification. You might get uh, email verification. You have to type back in. You have to upload your driver's license. You might need to provide a different piece of identification. And if you don't have all that ready to go, you have to keep starting the process over. Mm. So don't wait till the last minute with your clients. You probably need to sit down with them and make sure they're set up with their ID.me now before you know the last week of tax season. I get why they did this. You know, all the fraud we were seeing with TurboTax and HR Block and people stealing people's tax return information. It's the right idea behind this. But the argument is like, should a third-party company be doing this? Basically, they're not the gatekeeper saying who you are and who you aren't when you interact with the federal government. What's the alternative, right? The IRS doesn't have the capability to build this. And like you said, this is how a lot of scams were happening is scammers were using their get transcript tool to get transcripts for people and then using the data in the transcripts to commit identity fraud. So you got to have some way to protect the IRS systems to, to ID people other than your social security number. And what is it? It's usually your social security number and like an amount you reported on a previous return. So you don't have to use this to file your taxes. It's just for the self-help tools. So if you want to get a transcript. If you want to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. So this is good. This is a great step. I think it's a big step, but like how much power should a third-party company like this have? I mean, we've seen, you know, the IRS actually already backed away from back in the day when they were doing stuff with Equifax, but we've seen these other companies get hacked. Yeah, we'll see. Well, if it works, you know, like um, <laughs> that's the important thing, right? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Cinder. With direct connections to Amazon, Shopify, eBay, Stripe, Square, and 20 of the most popular online and e-commerce platforms, Cinder automatically categorizes and accurately posts transactions into the accounting system, allowing you to easily prepare your clients' data and organize their consolidated P&L regardless of the number of platforms they may be selling on. 
Cinder allows you to use the general ledger of your choice, QuickBooks, Xero, or even Cinder's own GL, which is designed specifically for e-commerce businesses and contains everything you need out of the box to make tax season a breeze. Cinder can sync all the necessary details like inventory items, tax, shipping, discounts, classes, and locations. It even correctly handles the processor fees. With tools like a duplicate detector and rollback functions, you can rest assured your client's books will never get messed up because you can undo and restore any synced data with literally one click. If you need support from Cinder, they offer free help using your favorite means of communication, be it chat, email, or phone. To try out Cinder for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Cinder. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-Y-N-D-E-R. Let's talk about, since we're talking about tax season, taxes, uh, H&R Block. We mentioned H&R Block is launching its own challenger bank. This is called Spruce. They first teased it last March. At the time, Chief Executive Jeff Jones said he wanted to diversify the company's product set and target low to moderate income customers without strong banking relationships. This is as reported in American Banker. Somebody comes into H&R Block. They don't have a bank account. H&R Block says, hey, we'll deposit your return into a bank account we'll set up for you. We got all your info. Makes a lot of sense, right? No fee spending account, ability to set up savings goals, cashback rewards on the Spruce debit card credit card score monitoring, early access to paychecks, and overdraft protection of up to $20. It's open to all users, whether or not you use H&R Block tax services. Everyone's becoming a bank, David. Yeah, they should have called it Square (laughs) instead of Spruce. Or just Block. They should have called it Block Bank. Block Bank. They have their 21 million households use H&R Block every year. So they're going to get people using this. They're going after that underbanked divide. And everybody's chasing this. We've talked about Chime before on the show. The digital bait chime. Yeah. They've started to uh, work with Goldman Sachs. They are prepping for their IPO and it's probably going to value the company at $40 billion. NetSuite has released Cash360 to help organizations effectively manage cash flow. It's a cash management solution built into NetSuite that includes configurable dashboards, well, a configurable dashboard, and automated cash flow forecasting capabilities that provide a real time view of cash positions. That is according to Oracle in their press release. Links to key cash management activities, displaying reminders of tasks that need to be taken care of, current cash balance, accounts payable and accounts receivable balances, cash flow trends, and a rolling six-month cash flow forecast. So I wonder, does this have the linked bank account? I mean, so it's showing the dashboard, it's got the cash flow forecasting, but it doesn't seem like they've yet got the integrated bill pay. And that was the thing that excited me, was the idea that you're going to be able to have an account with HSBC where you can pay a bill in NetSuite and then HSBC makes the payment. The real advantage of what the way they've done this is out of the box, you're getting all geographies, all locations, all countries. Globally. International payments. Right. All that out of the box with that. Global treasury management. So right now they've built the dashboard. They still got to build the other stuff. So the niche app HoneyBook. HoneyBook is essentially is a... I'm a wedding design planner. I'm a uh, wedding photographer. It's kind of the space they're in. Mm-hmm. Practice management type software. You you do your quote and get paid, that type of a thing. They announced that they are working with a company called Jaris. So it's a lending service called J-A-R-I-S that they uh, are now going to launch what they call as HoneyBook Capital. So which probably leads to the next thing. First you offer loans, then it's like, oh, you get your HoneyBook bank account. right? So I would not be surprised if we see this ne- a niche app offer the bank account next. Everyone's becoming a bank. 
AI-powered tax platform April launches after $10 million seed round. This is another Accounting Today story. What is April? It is a personalized tax engine that uses natural language processing and human-assisted AI, along with partnerships with financial institutions to streamline the tax preparation process and more closely align it with financial wellness. I went to their website, and it's not... It's, it's tax software for individuals. That's what it looks like to me, not for accountants. Tell me what you think, David, but it looks like a competitor to TurboTax. I don't know for sure on this, but there was a product out there a long time ago, Intuit acquired them, really a long time ago. I'm talking six, seven, eight years ago, and it was called Good April. And I've seen other startups like this pop up. And the, the, the whole premise is like, hey, we're going to help you make decisions along the year so you have a good April. We're going to connect in your bank accounts and this and this. And some of them will like even readjust. I think there's a company, a startup out here we've talked about on the show that'll, um, you know, the, a lot of these things now, the get paid early stuff, the instant payments yeah, yeah, for your paycheck yeah. or get your paycheck two days early. And they're going to adjust your withholding along the way during the year or or, give, or pre-give you some of your withholding now based on where your tax situation is going to be in April. So there's a lot of that going on, but I don't know specifically on this one. Well, it seems to be doing that because the first step in the how it works is connect April to your finance apps. And it says, connect your payroll, bank statements, mortgage, and prior your tax return and other finance apps so we can collect your data. Then it's tell us about yourself. Then do a quick review to make sure we didn't do anything. And then sit back, relax, and file with ease. Leave the number crunching to us. So it doesn't say how much it costs yet. It just says get early access. Cost of filing with April depends on our commercial arrangement with your bank. Wait, so you buy this through a bank? Yeah, so they're going to consumer, but they're not going direct to consumer, right? Yeah. They're going to consumer via the banks. I think that's the idea. It's a partnership play. The interesting thing about the co-founders is they are solid co-founders. Deloitte fintech strategist Ben Borodak, B-O-R-O-D-A-C-H, who led corporate strategy for the venture group Team 8. And the other co-founder is Daniel Marcus, M-A-R-C-O-U-S, former acting CTO of navigation startup Waze, which sold the... Google for $1 billion in 2013. So the former CTO of Waze and a Deloitte fintech strategist. So maybe they'll be able to uh, disrupt TurboTax through these partnerships. We'll see. Do you remember Pilot? Not Pilot, sorry. Visor? Yes. So that Visor was similar, was the, right? The, the, hey, $99, you get 24 hours access to CPA and they completely, they weren't filing people's returns and it's just a mess and it fell apart. My understanding is those founders have spun up another company that's very similar to this. Oh. That's what I was just actually trying to look and see and, and work backwards, but I don't think it's the same guys. Well, you know, it makes a lot of sense because accountants don't want to do personal tax returns anymore. Like we're getting rid of them as much as we can. H&R Block doesn't want to do them because you need tech to do it. That's the only way you can do it at that price. The idea of like human powered 1040s is fading fast. And what was interesting about April is like Jody Padar is joining them as a strategist from Botkeeper. And I was wondering why. Why is Jody Padar, who's a thought leader in the accounting space, why is she joining them if they're selling to consumers? And then I realized maybe their plan is to sell April to accounting firms for their 1040s, the personal tax stuff that they don't want to do. That would make sense. So we'll have to wait and see. And I mean, I can see why the banks want to add stuff like this with H&R Block adding a bank account. It's probably easier now for companies to add banking services to their app or to their company than it is for the banks to add tax services. Yeah. I, I can totally see how the, the banks want this. I also feel like these are services like this. They're great on paper, 
And again, going back to remember the TurboTax H&R Block, the simple return, that verbiage. Uh-huh. I think, yes, a simple return is probably gonna, this is probably going to work. But people, things are complicated really fast, especially now, right? Crypto, how's it going to handle that? People are buying crypto yeah, in their cash yeah. app for a dollar. You can't, probably can't connect cash app to this. Yep. We'll see where this heads. Practice Ignition did a Twitter poll, caught my attention. They said, there's been a lot of discussion about timing of payments today on tax Twitter. So we'd like to take a poll. When it comes to billing clients, what is your current process? Prepayment in full, meaning you get paid up front. Just 12% said they get payment in advance. Billing on completion, the opposite, waiting until you've done the work to bill. 63% said bill on completion. And this is of accountants on hashtag tax Twitter. So this is, I presume, the more tech-savvy folks. 63% still bill on completion. 50-50 split. So I get half up front, half on completion. 16%. And then other, you'd have to read the comments for that, were 9%. I highly recommend prepayment in full or at least getting 50% up front. And if you add those together, that's only 28%. 63% bill on completion. I find that kind of shocking because one of the easiest things you can do in your practice, really way easier than raising your fees, is just to get paid at least a portion of your fee in advance. Your cash flow is just so much better. It's so easy and it doesn't get that much pushback. And if you get a lot of pushback, it's usually from the clients who are not the best clients because the ones who are good clients understand that you have cash flow needs and you've got to pay your staff to do the work. If you're getting paid after the fact, you're basically floating the money to your client. You know what I mean? Like, this is so easy. This is the easiest freaking thing you could do is just get paid up front. Well, I'm trying to think, like, so your client comes in to you and says, hey, I'm having cash flow problems. And you as the accountant might look at their situation and say, hey, make sure you get paid before you do the work. Before you do that next landscaping job, Mr. Landscaper, get 50% deposit before you start doing the work. <laughs> We're not yeah, I'm very confused advice. by the psychology of this, right? Because I think accounts and bookkeepers might tell that to their clients to do that for their own businesses, but they can't do it themselves. There's some emotional problem here happening. I know one of the reasons why accountants don't do this is they feel like it's wrong to bill for some service they haven't provided yet. They actually feel it's wrong to do that. I mean, I don't think it's wrong to do that. I don't think there's any ethical issue with this. But I also see it that way a bit from the point of view where if I haven't provided the service, I don't want the cash in my account because you know, I want to get paid as I complete that work. Then wouldn't you properly put it into a liability account? Yeah, but accountants, we don't actually do this to ourselves. Okay. <laughs> you know, we don't have time for that. We're busy, right? At least get paid a, a deposit, right? At least get your um, cost of goods covered. If you are marking up your staff two and a half times, that means your COGS is 40%. At least get a 40, 50% deposit so that you're not on the hook if the client doesn't pay for, you don't lose money. The ideal situation is, let's say you just do tax. Convert all your clients to paying you on a monthly or quarterly basis and take to the fee that they pay you for their return that you bill on completion and just spread that out throughout the year. It will change your life. And there's so many apps that do this. Like I'm just shocked that it's still not happening. Well, and it's like, I know a lot of accountants are afraid to raise prices. We don't like to do it. We feel bad about it. We hate arguing with clients about fees. This is not something that really should be a debate. You shouldn't be getting pressure from clients to not pay you at least a deposit up front. I mean, attorneys do this. Do you pay 
your attorney, you pay them a retainer, right? You give them money before they start the work. That's normal. You have to give your insurance to your doctor before they'll see you. You have to provide evidence of insurance, right? That means that you can pay. When you order furniture, you have to put a deposit down. I'll leave it at that for now. My hands are up. I don't know. I don't understand the psychology on this. <laughs> why, why, why is an industry, we struggle with it more than other industries? It's because this is the thing that prevents us from moving into advisory. Most of us accountants are terrible business owners and accounting firms are not run like real businesses. Sad to say it, but it's true. Like we, we are horrible at running businesses. And that's why we suck at giving advice most of the time. Like, and that's why David, it's funny. I almost laughed when you said that, uh, your client comes to you and asks for advice. Like most clients don't come and ask their accountant for advice like that because the accountants don't know how to give it. Cause if they did, they would be doing it themselves. And I'm speaking as a CPA who has run a firm and talks to a lot of accountants all the time. We are generally not taught to be good business owners. I blame, I blame the education. It's amazing how many CPAs own their own practices. There's something like 40, how many CPA firms are there in the US? It's in the tens of thousands. And yet CPAs don't learn a lick in school about how to run their own business. Maybe that should be on the CPA exam or in the curriculum, how to run your own business. How to bill your clients. How to bill your clients, how to, how to get a deposit, how to get paid. I'm getting angry now, All right, we'll move but on. we're we'll out move of time. On. Right Networks, <laughs> remember they purchased Rootworks? Yeah. Right. And then right before that, I mean, Right Networks purchased um, Transaction Pro Importer. They purchased the sync tool for syncing apps. I forgot. I'm blanking on the name of that. And then they purchased Rootworks and Rootworks purchased CPA Practice Advisor. Now they purchased an analytics app called uh, Tally Street. It looks like, you know, Rootworks and Right Networks is building, they're building a stack. I don't know what direction they're going because it's kind of a media company over here. Uh, data input company over here, obviously the hosting company as well. Definitely they're diversifying though, right? Because we could argue on a long enough timeline, hosting's going to go away. So they're definitely diversifying into some other things, but now they have the end result, right? The mm -hmm. reporting, if you want to call it reporting or analytics. Well, David, that's about all the time we've got this week. If people want to get in touch with you online, where do you recommend they do that? The easiest way is I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. I am at Blake T. Oliver. Let me know your thoughts at us on Twitter and email me at Blake at BlakeOliver.com. If you have any thoughts, any hate mail about my crypto feelings, now I don't care. I mean, I'm, I think I'm right. <laughs> I used to feel bad about it, like being a skeptic. Now I'm like, oh, no, no, no. There's something up here. Um, but let me know your thoughts. And if you want to hear your own voice on the air, I'd love to get a voice memo from you. So instead of typing that message, save yourself some trouble, record a voice memo on your phone, email that to me, and we'll listen and we might even play it on the air. And, uh, you know, you can tell me if you want me to use your name or not. You don't have to go public with your thoughts. I'd love uh, to hear a just... story about somebody's client that lost money in Bitcoin. Because I do feel like it's like yeah, like Vegas. Everybody, everybody always says about how much they want. Oh, yeah. Well, right? it's you kind know of like, like there's always stories about 17-year-old made $2 million in Bitcoin. There's always stories all the time, but somebody's losing money. Well, you know, the people who are losing money are the ones who are really loud about how much money they were making and that are now really quiet. Okay. Those are the people who lost the money. And uh, you know who you are. I feel, I'm sorry for your loss. I really am. But also, it, it wasn't that smart. Uh, I'll shut up. David, have a great week. I'll talk to you next week. All right, bye. Time for the classifieds. 
Hey podcast listeners, it's Blake and I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right, a true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded, because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor, or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. To subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.